one woman told me about someone trying to set her hijab on fire. You have women who could have lived had they had access to health. Young men are like routinely excluded from civilian death counts. They are the most vulnerable to recruitment, but when they arrive at the border, they are the most threatening category of migrant to arrive. I, as a human being, will not stand for this type of behaviour. everyone and welcome back to the podcast Peace and Gender. My name is Andrea Tis Evanson and today I'm here with Miki Jakovic. Hey Miki. So I was Hi. just wondering if you could start off. Thank you so much for being here by the way. Thank you. Coming all the way from America. I was wondering if you could start off just telling me a little bit basic for the people that don't know who you are. Sure. So I ha- I'm originally from Bosnia and Herzegovina and so I was about your all's age when the war happened in my country, which was really the introduction to me in terms of both working on peace and security issues and certainly on how, how women contribute to stopping war and rebuilding nations after it. So for the last about 25 years, I've been working with various organizations on both advocacy and how you shape a peace process that's more inclusive, as well as now working with the governments to ensure that voices of marginalized groups are taken into account when we stop war. So why is it important that women are included in the peace process? So again, what I've seen and my own experience in, in Bosnian war, which was in the mid-90s, for example, from the gender perspective, I was of the sort of prime fighting age. I was a young man who was supposed to go to war. But in most of these new wars, nobody's trained for it. It affects the whole country. It is what I call domestication of violence. So wars are not anymore on the battlefield somewhere out there. There are now streets, our homes, our schools. The young people of the country were not ready for what happened. So so as a young man, I was actually useless for the war purposes. Yet what happened on the other side is that it was really the women of Bosnia, my own mother, sister, all across the countries were able to sustain life because they were able to go get food, go get water, all the things that were needed to to stop essentially the, the, the bloodshed. And so what I saw firsthand and I've been seeing in, from Liberia to Afghanistan, even to Syria today is that in the kind of wars we have today, the nature of conflict has completely changed. It now affects everybody. So using the old tools we have disposal, such as this top-level diplomacy, etc., is only part of the story. For peace to truly arrive, you have to engage the whole community. So do you want to tell me just quickly how you remember what your mother did during the war? Oh, absolutely. And and there's a few, you can see some of the videos actually online, etc., which is where we tell the story overall of the Bosnian women and changes, which is essentially the wars of today. They, they kind of suddenly come upon you. No, nobody's prepared. Nobody understands, frankly, what's happening. It's It's... Free for all, if you will, in terms of just the chaos, essentially, that happens. And this was very much true of all the wars that started in the 90s. So we went from that Cold War to then this chaos that in many ways we are still living in today. Two main features are these wars are communal, they're collective, they affect everybody. It's not like you have a choice not to participate. So yes, only a few people maybe go to the front lines, but everybody gets affected. And so I'm from Sarajevo, which is the capital city of Bosnia, and there was a huge siege 
And essentially, we were blocked from the rest of the world for three years and constantly shell and bombed, and which meant essentially that even to get the basic necessities such as water or food, you have to move about and you had to go to a UN base and get the packages from United Nations Human Refugee Organization, etc. And so my mom and all these other great women of Bosnia essentially kept sustaining life by always being on the move, by always providing, by always getting enough, not only for your immediate family, but also for the babies in your apartment building, for the elderly neighbors who couldn't leave their homes, etc. So what that allowed is this enormous social network and social capital that builds through these women's networks. And yes, most of that is informal and unofficial. It never gets recognized, which is, in my opinion, the purpose of Women, Peace and Security Field is to really just shed light on these extraordinary efforts in these extraordinary times that sadly in most countries don't carry over when we go back to ordinary or the, or the peace times, which is what tends to happen is after the war, that informal social capital that was, again, all about networks and connections, and most importantly, as we had seen from Northern Ireland to Bosnia, from Afghanistan to Myanmar, these networks often cross the divides. You are connecting with women from the other ethnic group, other religious group, so that social fabric, social cohesion, sadly gets lost when the official peace process comes, where the politicians who were, frankly, the warlords during the war, suddenly claim to be the peacemakers. So how old were you during the war? 20. You don't seem old at all. Seems like... <laughs> <laughs> oh, you, my children will love this. I'm going to make them listen too. So as a... <laughs> As a young adult during the war, seeing your mother and all these other women doing these incredible things, how did that affect your your work later in life? Well, it absolutely set, set me on the course, that, you know, obviously during the war, certainly, but for the last 25 years since this episode, I, I really have done this work on women, peace and security very much on this experiential basis, meaning as a practitioner, and I have carried that message from Bosnia to Liberia, to Afghanistan, to Colombia, Iraq, where I now work, which is I just had seen the firsthand the huge potential and impact on the kind of work and connections that these women's individual work, but also groups and collectives really can mean for peace. And so I continue to very much daily and very much in the dire circumstances, witness the key connections and the impact that, that that this work means. And so therefore, very much it determined not only my professional path, but also how I educate my children, how I interact with people, which is that that's what I strongly believe, that the feminist approach to governance and how we relate to each other really is at the core of basic inclusion, which is everybody today wants to have a voice. Everybody, including refugees, marginalized, disabled peoples. It's not just a human rights issue, which it is in its principle, but for me, it's a matter of just basic principle of how we relate to each other and therefore what makes for a stable society. This is so good. You are brilliant, I have to say. It's such an honor to have you here. So I was wondering, we'll, we'll talk a bit more about women in, in peace and security later on as well, but you've been everywhere, pretty much. You, you've done so much. It's actually incredible. During all the years you've been working in the field sure. and in these countries, has there been a particular, there's probably been a lot, but an event that you remember today that sure. was really significant for you? 
Sure. Well, they certainly are many from working with the Colombian women in, even 10 years ago when they were starting to demobilize some of the individual soldiers from the rebel groups who were coming back and seeing those mothers of the soldiers of the Colombian army who were disappeared by the FARC, the rebel group, be able to sit down in a circle and welcome some of these demobilized FARC women and have a very profound connection, not just about to talk about the war, but of healing and forgiveness, about transforming the country and then all the way to many places where the the war is still happening or is just finished and seeing the societies really daily pick up that kind of resilience and find the ability to sort of say the war is now over how do we move forward it's it's just frankly all inspiring and that's the reason I do come to Monash and universities around the world when I can make the time is I just want to have the young generation really be not taken down by this horrible nationalist rhetoric that we see by our political leaders because what I see on the ground in many of these countries is that people are so resilient, they're so strong, and even in the worst of circumstances, they're able to pick up the pieces of peace. And so one particular story of inspiration comes from Afghanistan, where I worked many, many years, and it's really sort of my second homeland. In in that country, obviously... All people have known is war, frankly, because for the last 40 years, going back to the Russian invasion, everything has been one after the other. So so most people had never had access to education, basic services, but the resilience and strength of that proud nation uh, always has required the, the voices of women and all these other marginalized communities be present and be alive. So we were conducting a series of workshops on how do you bring the peace process down to the provincial level. And so we were working on some basic mediation negotiation skills and trying to work the the NC was called Provincial Peace Council so it was a formal body of about 30 people of whom a handful were women and typically in those cultures in frankly in most cultures when you have the groups that are so predominantly men the women tend to not be as forthright and as present. And so we were having this one session and all the men were sort of saying, they were sort of talking the talk and figuring things out and planning, etc. And at one point, this amazing, and she was a young teacher, actually. She she was born, frankly, during the the Taliban time. So she's done by uh, 2022. She started then telling us a story about how she was applying all those skills we've been talking about. And so it it was so interesting because she was like, oh, and I hadn't really done much, and I don't really have access, etc. But eventually she prote- pre- then tells us a story how she went to the Taliban stronghold and how she was able, 22-year-old women, to negotiate the release of hostages in a way that just was mind-blowing because, again, she was able to build trust, build that bridge, explain and use the collective language of we are in this together, we are all Afghans, this is not our war, how do we get th- those young boys from the Afghan military that they were held in captive back to their own mothers. And so that kind of narrative, and this is a unique story of many, many, many mediation efforts, particularly in Afghanistan, Pakistan, that region, but all across the world. That is an example of how saving even one human life when you give women access and skills is really something that we just have to replicate and do more around the world. So you've been in Afghanistan uh a lot, you say. Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk a little bit more about your work there? A lot of people that listen to this, 
you know, our students and younger. Sure. So just to explain kind of what you've been doing and how you actually, you know, implement your help as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So again, we, we have different programs, different approaches, but the, the key part is happening at two levels. One is how do you find work strength and many of the civil society and women's organizations that are there, they're thriving, they're existing, but they do need to have some technical help and assistance. So all the great things you all study here at schools in terms of just basic project management or how do you conduct a media campaign or how do you speak to the journalists all the way to how do you tackle a peace process? Because what we don't recognize, none of us woke up to be a professional peace builder. We were all teachers, students, in, in the case of these women, many were teachers and doctors in, in the case of Afghanistan. So you have one set of skills, but obviously to deal with this peace process, which is, again, not a rocket science, but it does require some knowledge on security, basic security issues, basic conflict analysis, etc. So we try to provide those tools and then we have them working together because obviously what we often need to remind people, it's it's not like, you know, 20 million Afghan women think alike. Women are just as diverse as men and they have different views, different priorities. So you have to sort of help them b build a coalition, but also take a stance on a particular set of issues. So that's the work directly with these women's organizations, which again, as, as you were saying, they, they've done so much of this. Now you just need to recognize their efforts and give them visibility. But the second equally, if not more important, is how do you give them opportunities then to advocate and influence the peace process. So much of my work these days, and this is what I've written in this great book by Monash, Great Jackie Through, which is this Oxford Handbook on Women, Peace and Security. And I have a chapter in there on these national election plans, which is really government-owned commitment to implementing this agenda. So the key effort now, after 20-some years of all of us working on this, is how do we turn these very important and meaningful conversations and resolutions into actual actions that can make a difference? So I was wondering if, is there any other story that you remember that you would like to, to share with us? You know, you can hear all these things, but if you, if you get Absolutely. a story to it, you understand it. And you f yeah, when, when you push to my age and when you've done it in so many countries, stories indeed abound and there are too many. I would like your listeners to really, just by themselves, learn more about the story of Rwanda, which is a nation in Central Africa that literally this month, actually in five days, 25 years ago, went through a horrible genocide. Uh, and it was just one of the worst case studies of human slaughter ever. And yet after that genocide, the country has been able, because of the inclusionary policies of both the government and the strength of the Rwandan women, it's now nation number one, even above your countries, up north the countries, with 65% women in parliament, with half the women in the cabinet. And it's the country with the fastest growth rate in Africa. And so it's a great case study of inclusion. And, and they did this with young people, with disabled communities, inclusion as a social and political tool can really influence your long-term economic development and certainly stability because you go from genocide to being one of the fastest growing economies in Africa. But I do want to talk about another nation in Africa that inspires me to today, which is Liberia. And it's a story of these women who just mobilized because they were so sick and tired of war. And they first started mobilizing within their churches, and then they connected with the women in the mosques. So what you had this 
combination of wonderful communally inspired women who decided then one day that they're just going to go to the fish market and start processing. Now that sounds something for us in the West that's a regular thing, but the country was run by dictator Charles Taylor that's now at trial because of his crimes and what it meant these women, and particularly there were two leaders, Leigh McBoy, who later won the Nobel Peace Prize for this work, and Asatu Banakanet from the Muslim communities, which went to mobilize the women of the market. And what that meant is that the entire city of Monrovia came to a standstill because everything happens, most transactions, not just buying your groceries, but everything else is done at the market. And what it means when the market stops, the whole city stops. And what these women were able to do is send a very powerful message for the whole country that unless you stop this war, we are going to just stop the, the functioning of, of, of the market, of the city, of the country. And it really puts such a pause because remember all of these warlords, these dictators, they act like gods. They think they're above and beyond anybody or anything else. And it's incomprehensible to them that these market women could actually stop them in their tracks. And so the story of Liberian women who then carry on that effort and they follow the negotiation process. And at one point, they literally locked up the warlords in the room. They, they blocked it. They, they blocked them from exiting the room until the peace was signed is the reason why they won the Nobel Peace Prize, which is for the first time the world recognized. And this happened many places, but this was well documented. There's a great documentary called Pray the Devil Back to Hell that shows the story of them physically blocking the exit from these warlords to, to leave the room until they sign the peace accord. And it's just the strength and the power of these completely... And this is what I often say. People say, oh my God, how do we organize? Most of these women don't have money. They don't have any resources. But they're so inspired and they're so invested in ending the war that our job as, as international helpers is to just give them some skills, visibility, and resources to really do what they've already been doing, just to do it stronger and more, more deeply. That really moved me. <laughs> that had me tear up. I had to control myself. So I've also read about uh, you and your wife's projects on uh, prevention of a genocide, like a youth project. Do you want to tell me a bit about that as well? Uh, it's actually an organization. It's called Global Youth Connect. And the mission is really to educate the new generation uh, about prevention of genocide, responsibility to protect, and these global and transnational networks that can be build solidarity and can, again, help prevent all this violence and atrocities. So we run programs in Rwanda, Colombia, my native Bosnia. My wife is from Guatemala, and she's a major human rights leader in that country. And so what we have done over the last 20 years, actually it's our anniversary this year, is we have taken delegations of young people, mostly from North America and Europe, and occasionally I might have had one or two Australians, so not, not enough. but And then we spent about a month in each of these countries in solidarity with the local students and groups. So it's a youth focus program. But we do three things. We obviously learn about the events of what happens. In, in the case of Bosnia, we attend, attend the major genocide commemoration at Srebrenica. In Rwanda, we visit all the genocide sites. Uh, in Colombia, where they didn't have as many massacres, they certainly had had events of the past to commemorate. But then we spend a lot of time together thinking about and designing how do you prevent this in the future? How do you deal with the strength and the resilience of these communities and something that the world should know about? Because often we tend to move away from the... When the, when the war happens, there's a lot of attention immediately because 
you know, it bleeds, it sells all the other stuff. But what is not covered as much is the story of recovery. It's the story of resilience. What does it actually mean to rebuild a country, to build a social fabric, to, to connect all the broken bonds? And all of these countries are very inspirational in that sense. So out of a tragedy, how do you indeed, through inclusive practices and policies, give everybody a voice in rebuilding their nation and their country? So, uh, And then the third element is really inspiring and wanting many of these young students to really be involved, to become active players. Many of them study international relations, political science, some are journalists. But what's more important for us is whatever you're going to do in life, to remember this story, to remember the people, to remember the mothers of those who perished that you had met in Bosnia and Rwanda and Guatemala, and to know that our job as the next generation is really to talk about those things in a way that's going to educate us all, despite of the current nationalist rhetoric. We are all connected. This is the world we share, and we all bear responsibility to what's happening to every human being on this planet. One of my questions is, you know, what can we actually do? What needs to be right. done now for the future? But as young people growing up, as the next generation, what what can we do? Like, how what needs to be done now? Act. Sadly, while I love technology today, it's making many of us more passive, absorbent of news, information, things. Everybody, I was walking the streets of Melbourne last night and everybody's literally just looking at their phones. And I would like people to not just be absorbing that information, but also be critical thinker, number one and decide to answer that question. Obviously, everybody's answer to what I do can be different, but I do want to have everybody that spark that says, I can have a voice, I can participate, being it a communal effort in my own neighborhood to doing something in the city level to certainly doing it at national and international level. So that action is sort of critical first think and then decide and get, get engaged and act and uh, the beauty of this world is we're all now connected on internet and there's ways to always find out what is my passion and how do I act it. And the second is connect, uh, meaning there are just, while we are on one level connected as never before, I've seen more and more particularly young people live, live in their own isolation, live, live on the websites, etc. Et et and So for me, I don't want to lose that human touch and that can only only happen in live interactions. And if there's one advice to any of the students is I would love everybody to at least travel and visit one or two countries in, in your during your studies. Because just the world opens you up so much. It cracks open your own kind of thinking. And it certainly might have changed your life in terms of the choices you're going to make. So so and, and again, I, I, I'm not saying everybody has ability to do internships or do work internationally, but there is obviously great potential in Southeast Asia, Pacific, all the other countries that are nearby that definitely are worth visiting. And my last point is then once you have seen the world, once you can connect it, but even if you just want to do this thing domestically is try to break our out of your comfort zone. Try to push yourself to because these are the best years to do that. Honestly, trust me, I've just lived life long enough. Once you get a job, once you start a family, once you it's so much harder to try to push some of the boundaries. So these are the best years for you all to kind of see what is it that I'm intrigued by, but I might be afraid for whatever reason, to push yourself to test it. Uh, to experiment with what are the interesting things that you might want to see in your life. And yes, I know it might drive your parents crazy because in the middle of the studies, you might change your major or whatever else can happen. But this really is the best time to be brave. Thank you so much. I think we're going to end it at that. All right. Thank you so much for coming in today. Absolutely. I really appreciate it. You're flying back to America tomorrow. Tomorrow, you? yes. Tomorrow. <laughs> oh. But been here 10 days. It's, it's time to go. <laughs> <laughs>
That was Miki Yakovich. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Peace and Gender. This podcast is produced for Mojo News and Monash Gender Peace and Security by me, Andrew T. Sebs. Edited by David Bonadio, and the research is by Hien Trang Lee. 